0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dennis Sanders, the host of Church in Maine. This is episode 142. And in this episode, we'll talk about a crisis of faith in our churches. Welcome. This is uh, episode 142 of Church in Maine. This is the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. My name is Dennis Sanders. I am a pastor here in uh, the uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota, and uh, I am your host of this uh, podcast. So, as I said, I'm a pastor and a pastor of... Um, a mainline Protestant denomination uh, congregation. Uh, my congregation is a part of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, um, and I'm also ordained in that denomination. Like a lot of mainline Protestant denominations, it is in decline. And like a lot of mainline Protestant congregations, uh, my the congregation that I serve is also dealing with decline. These are churches that may have at one time been very, had lots of people and don't have as many people now. And like a lot of people and a lot of of, uh, organizations and, and congregations, especially after COVID, we're kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And like a lot of people for years, I would read lots of different books about renewal and revival and what we need to do and what uh, things that you can do. And here are these tips. And I've gone to conferences. And I think that there are some good things that come from those things. So I don't want to knock all of them. But it was interesting last summer, I decided to read a book that I felt really was answering kind of something that was going on really already going on in my soul for a while that wondered what if we didn't try to do the newest and flashiest thing as a congregation, but we simply met for worship and came together for prayer and studied the Bible? Um, and I didn't really have a way of trying to put that into, into words or to try to under really flesh out what that all meant, but that was something I was kind of dealing with. And um, then this last summer, I decided to start reading uh, Church in the Crisis of Decline by um, Dr. Andrew Root. And it was was kind of, in in some ways, mind-blowing, because I felt like this was actually kind of getting at what I was thinking for all of these years, but not really voicing and realizing this was kind of... Maybe what I was thinking—I've been thinking about—and even also adding some things that I hadn't even thought about—and um, and maybe the courage to not feel that we have to do the latest and greatest thing at the congregation, but maybe to sit still, um, to slow down, and to see and be attentive to God's presence, which sometimes in our Busyness with trying to deal with declining churches, I really think sometimes we forget that you know this is kind of about God, and we don't always pay attention to that. So today for this episode, I um, am interviewing Andy Root, and I have been very excited. I've been looking forward to um, being able to to talk to him, especially after reading this book. I'm starting to read. Um, his latest book, "The Church After Innovation," um, and so I really enjoy this. Uh, I really enjoyed the book. I'm, I'm looking for, uh, and I think you will enjoy this interview. I really had a great time talking to him. In this interview, we will talk about churches in decline, um, about kind of how really, in some ways, revival can really only come as I said earlier, when we kind of slow down, when we're able to stop, and we're able to really be open to seeing where God is active, to see and sense God's presence. And maybe I hope that if anything, you will come away from this, maybe wondering that maybe the crisis that we've been dealing with is not decline, but maybe one of faith in in God. Or, as um Andy likes to say, the God who is God, so a little bit about um, Andy Root, he is the Carrie Olson Bowson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, which happens to be my alma mater. Um, he is, talks uh teaches on youth and family ministry, but he has also written extensively on um, issues surrounding kind of the kind of the cross section of faith and our secular age, which is kind of right in line with this podcast. So, uh, he lives in St. Paul with his wife, uh, Cara, who is a Presbyterian minister, and they have two kids. Um, If the last name sounds familiar, it's because actually in the fall I interviewed, um, I I did interview Cara, um, and we um, talked about... um, her congregation, um, which is in South Minneapolis, and about their decision to kind of go um, practice Sabbath. Um, she is an author in her own right. I will put a link to her, that episode, in the show notes. And so once you're done listening to this episode, give that episode a listen. But without further ado, let's go into uh, this uh, fascinating discussion that I, I had with uh, Professor Andrew Root. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to chat.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So I think the first thing I wanted to kind of start off with is um, finding out a little bit of background about yourself. Um, this is probably the first time in the podcast that I've actually had a husband and wife on. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I had um, um, your uh, wife, um, Cara, on back in think september october i have known actually cara for for 15 16 years through our work in the presbytery um so i haven't known much about you as much as except for reading in books but would love to hear a little bit about your background um especially um i know a little bit have heard a little bit about your childhood and how that may have connected to your work today
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm honored to be the you know, the husband and wife team on the podcast. So, uh, <laughs> people can, can rank which one was better. I'm sure hers was, will be far more interesting. She's a far more interesting person than I am, but, uh, we can compete here on that. Uh, yeah. So I, I grew up in the twin cities. Um, I grew mm-hmm. up in a suburb of, of St. Paul called Woodbury, which, um, right now is, uh, like the Uber suburb of the East, Eastern, Eastern, uh, suburbs, as you well know. And, uh, when I grew up there, though, it was just a little farm town, really. You know, so it was uh, all these East Side Saint Paul folks who got a little money um, <laughs> and like my parents and moved to the suburbs. So that's where I grew up. And you know, we used to go to baseball tournaments and things like that. And people would be like, "Where's Woodbury?" And now, if if you know anything about the Twin Cities, you know it's this this uber uber mm-hmm. suburb. And uh, so I grew up there, and I grew up in a Lutheran church. I, uh, um, yeah, so I, I and now teaching in an ELCA seminary. I've been teaching there for 17 years, but I, I grew up uh, in a conservative Lutheran denomination, the Missouri Synod, and mm-hmm. that formed me in a certain way. And kind of early Reformation theology has, uh, it's it stuck, like confirmation. Actually, I'm one of those people where confirmation really worked <laughs> on me. And uh, so, yeah, but but became involved. One of the beautiful things about that church was uh, it got me really involved in ministry at a young age, you know, doing vbs and just really involved in my youth ministry uh but felt a kind of call to ministry when i was in high school and Mm. didn't know what that would mean never thought it would mean being an academic in in any way you know any of my high school friends would think my gosh that would be the last thing this guy would do you know like uh i was more of a a prankster um you know like wannabe jock guy not uh not a bookworm in in any stretch of the imagination but then you know you go to college and stuff happens so uh yeah it was kind of you know the missouri sin is interesting because it's it's kind of i guess politically sociologically an evangelical denomination um Mm -hmm. at least when it kind of comes to those sociological markers but uh didn't function liturgically that way functioned very Lutheran kind of liturgically. Mm-hmm. And so, um, didn't really know where to go to college. And so I ended up at a, a Baptist college here in the twin cities, um, Bethel college at the time, Bethel university oh. is what it's called now. And, uh, became really clear that I wasn't Baptist. I love Baptists <laughs> and appreciated that education, but it, it led me back to my early reformation roots in many ways. And, uh, then ended up in seminary in Southern California, mainly because it seemed, well, it had a great reputation, but also uh, Fuller Seminary did, but also, you know, there was no snow to shovel in February. That seemed like an amazing deal to get, get out of the cold Twin Cities. And um, But even there, like, started reading Bonhoeffer and mm-hmm. uh, and really found, I uh, heard a calling, I mean, still to stay in ministry, but really to to start to wrestle with big ideas and so Mm -hmm. uh you know uh one thing led to another as they say and went from an mdiv program to a master's of theology program a a thm program to a phd program and you know now i've been teaching at a seminary for 18 years and uh writing books which again you would have told my 16 year old self that i write books and i would have thought you don't even know how to spell words how could you do that so you know uh it's a Su- surprise of a surprise of God to, to be doing this. But uh yeah, that's, that's me.
0: So how important was it um for you? It, it kind of sounds like for, for you that the Missouri Synod was helpful in helping you to be who you are. And I, I think one thing I even noticed because I I'm someone that came from an evangelical background and now in the mainline, um, and especially for, for me uh growing up um gay is that usually you kind of want to reject all of that and i've tended mm-hmm. not to personally just because i think that there are certain things that i think helped shape who i am um yeah. that you know yeah there was all bad stuff but there was all good stuff too and i'm so i i i guess i'm i'm seeing that that was also similar for you yeah. that you found things that were good um, to come from from your Missouri Senate background,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm with you, Dennis, completely. That um, uh, I I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I don't know how to say this. In, in some sense, like I don't want to uh, undervalue other people's experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think yeah. that you know it's become a major kind of internet thing to kind of. Uh, become X, whatever kind yeah. of conservative background you were. And and I think that for some people that comes out of real pain and in real, you know, experiences of rupture and hardship. So I would never want to belittle that anyway. But for me, I've always felt like it was necessary in my own, um, I guess in my own kind of Christian life and the integrity of my Christian life to, to find a way to embrace my past and to recognize that, yeah, there was a lot of goofy theological things, you know, things that now that I would I I would find very troubling, like not ordaining women or um or or what have you. But there are also people there who, because of the gospel, really loved me and invested mm-hmm. in my life and um, taught me that the ways I think about God uh, matter. And ultimately, at the core, which I've really kept with me and has probably been really the central dynamic of even my academic life is is the commitment that god moves in history that god does things that god Mm -hmm. um that god is an actor in the world that's god's not just a religious idea and um even the church isn't just a kind of religious collective but it is a place where we confess that god moves in the world and that god does work in the world that is saving work and you know that that was weird sometimes, you know, like, um, as, as that worked itself out, but I've never lost that. And so I always want to be deeply appreciative of that past, whether it was in the Missouri Senate or whether it even wasn't kind of, you know, classic high evangelicalism at Bethel college, you know, and, you know, by high evangelicalism, I mean, no liturgy at all, just five <laughs> praise songs and a 45 minute sermon that wasn't a sermon it was you know a teaching Mm -hmm. um even in those experiences like i don't want to i don't want to undersell those or i don't want to belittle them because i'm embarrassed by them i want to recognize that they were gifts from god and um Mm. and you know you spent now almost 20 years more than 20 years in the main line and there's some there's some wacky, crazy things about the main line too, you know? So um, very different. I mean, almost, you know, the very uh, exact different, but there's, there, there, we're all, we're all, we all have our our goofy things that we're, that we're uh, living with. And so um, I I, want to be thankful for those experiences.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think talking about the sense of God acting, especially in history and, and in the world and, That that's something that has been or can be missing in mainline circles?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I actually think in an an odd way, it's in in some ways missing in both evangelical Mm. and mainline, but it gets vocalized in very different ways. Um, Because another element of my kind of conservative past, especially going from a classically kind of Lutheran background to an evangelical one, to a kind of Baptist evangelical one is I, I, yeah, towards the end of my college years, it felt like we talked about God doing things all the time, but there was really no process of discernment. And I mm. didn't know when it was God and when it was my own subjective experience. And so it really became a, that in its own own sense it, it, there's a certain way that talking about God all the time doing stuff was a, another way of God not doing anything if that makes any sense you know like hmm. it becomes so much built around what i want it to be or how i interpret it that there's real no really no sense of the otherness of god that might uh, be judging me or 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 kind of moving me in a certain direction over and against even what I kind of subjectively feel or how I might interpret this. Um, and, and yet in the mainline I think we're, we're, we're really quite afraid of this very almost consumeristic sense of God acting. We, we don't want God to be a product. We don't want God to become just a mascot or something. Mm. But that almost leads us to not have that imagination at all. Like, you know, to over-intellectualize things and be like, well, um, smart people don't talk like that, um, mm-hmm. even though we have 2,000 years of different Christian traditions and plenty of Christian traditions outside the West that talk quite often about, you know, God speaking and God moving. And so, I think as a, as kind of American Protestantism has really struggled with how do we talk about the revelation of God? How do we talk about God moving? Um and in in really diametrically different ways, both evangelicalism and the mainline have have struggled with that in the last fifty years.
0: Hmm. So, one of the things and and the reason I I um why I joined the podcast was primarily for the a book of Church in the Crisis of Decline, and decline is something especially within mainline churches. I I think that's probably starting to happen even within evangelical circles of this sense of of decline happening in churches. And the interesting thing is how churches have responded to that. And I think a, a lot of the thesis of your book is this sense of, of feeling like we have to have all of these resources, the things that um, we have to do to try to make sure that the church is still relevant um, in our day and age. And how are, how can or have churches in some ways i guess gone off of the beaten track when it comes to to decline how have they responded and probably basically how have they not responded faithfully in in this tense of decline yeah
1: yeah i mean there is a sense with the title of the book you know churches in the crisis of decline it was funny when that book was when they, they announced the title of the book and it, it showed up on Amazon and things that have, have people write me and, and say, oh, I'm so glad you see your books coming out. This is the real issue. Decline is, you know, we got to face this or the church is going to disappear in a generation. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't think – you really know what's in this, in this book. So there's something a little misleading about the title, I think, that is, uh, it has a little clickbait, uh, element to it, you know, churches in the crisis mm-hmm. of decline. Cause I ultimately think that the crisis of decline or, or, you know, decline, I think crisis is true. I think we're in a crisis, but mm-hmm. I think the crisis of decline is the red herring. And I think that it, uh, we feel it. And I, and that's not to, to undersell any pastor, you know, listening, like, you. I know Cara is more than aware that one one roof leak and your 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 toast. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, that's all it's going to take is is you know, um some water problem in the basement, you know, and and it, it could sink you. You know, so there is a real sense of the fragility of that. And I don't want to undersell that, nor do I want to flippantly say like, well who cares about buildings? Because these have been people for generations who out of faithfulness gave to keep these buildings going. And there is something to hold on to there. But I do think what keeps most pastors up at night is this kind of sense that there are fewer people and fewer people means fewer resources. Um, And so we need more people. So we have more resources or maybe we need more resources so we can get more people like there becomes this kind of caught in a in a in a kind of trap of is it more resources or more people? But if we had more resources, more people, we'd eventually have more relevance. And that's really what would then give us more resources and more people, you know, there becomes this kind of never ending, almost consumer cycle that we, we need this. And I do think to be a Protestant means that there's a crisis. Like you live always in a sense of, of crisis, but I think what's happened to us in the late 20th century into the 21st century is we've turned the crisis almost completely into a crisis of resources and, and members. And um, most pastors have that experience of kind of not being able to sleep at night. Like, you know, you wake up and all of a sudden the fear hits you. And usually what that is, is like le- roof is leaking or why have I been at this for six years? And we have fewer members than when I started with, you know, I must be awful at my job. Um, I think that's usually what keeps people up at night. And yet I think historically and even more captivating the crisis. And I think really culturally at this moment, the real crisis is, That we proclaim a God who speaks and moves in history, and yet we are formed culturally to not be aware of that. And so what Mm. I wish kept pastors up at night was, how am I going to help these people who are over busy, who are dealing with all sorts of, you know, mental health struggles or just dealing with the stresses of life? How am I going to help them hear the word of God again? Uh, I think that's a crisis. I think that inside of this kind of secular age we live in, it's not a secular age that lacks spirituality, but it is a a secular age that lacks a kind of sense of the continued presence of a living God. You know, that this is a kind of secular age where people can say things like, I'm taking a break from God for a while, or a pastor could even say, I haven't thought about God in three weeks, you know, like, um, you just couldn't say that 500 years ago, like the way mm-hmm. our societies were structured. You couldn't say that other parts of the globe right now that, you know um, you couldn't say that you could just not think about God, but we can, that's the kind of secular age we live in. And I think that's the crisis we face is how do we help um, those in our congregations? again hear the, 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 uh, the voice of the living God to see the movements of God. And I just I don't think there's many pastors who, you know, stare at that ceiling in the middle of the night, unable to sleep because they're worried about that. Um, But I think maybe we should. Like, that's really our concern is is how do we um, how do we help people have that imagination again for that?
0: Why do you think that is that there are people that will stay up late at night and we're worried about basically to be frank butts and pews, but we're not interested in. And helping people to really have a, a strong relationship with God
1: yeah i mean i think it, i think it's a few reasons the, the one i really try to explore in the book is um you know again probably to my fault i've been addicted to uh really wrestling with the, the canadian philosopher the catholic canadian philosopher charles taylor's work and one of the things that he says that i really try to take on in this book and it's a 700 page project that he's after so i found that it's taken me you know six books to be able to articulate its its ramifications for um maybe i'm just crazy and nuts but uh it's you know taken me six books to try to get at the depth of what this means for us for ministry, but what becomes really central in this one is that we just the way our institutions function and the way uh it just is to live in late modernity as we're, we're given this kind of f- imminent frame where we just mm-hmm. presume things are more natural and material than, say, spiritual or supernatural. Um, now, you can find all sorts of folks you know, in storefront churches in every um, city in this country who believe something very different and have experiences that are very different. And in many ways, Pentecostalism is a kind of pushback to the reductions of that imminent frame. But it still is a kind of modern response to the presumption that things are natural and material; that uh, that transcendence is not uh, a, a real engagement in our lives. Um, and I I think that's part of the issue: is that we we tend to live inside of this imminent frame and. Um, and do ministry inside this imminent frame. So even sometimes over and against our best intentions, like we would like to speak of a living God, we'd like our people to encounter um, the presence of God in, in Bible study or whatever practices that it becomes so hard to break that imminent frame. And in many ways, we're we're kind of encouraged to keep the imminent frame closed, you know, to, to, to close it down in even I think one of the places Taylor says where you can find a, a closed imminent frame, like there's no way out of the imminent frame, but it could, it could be open and there mm-hmm. could be open experiences in it. But w- we also find places where it's quite closed. And and he says, one of the, the places where it's closed is usually in universities, um, that there's more of a presumption there than almost anywhere else in our culture that we are dealing with only natural material things. And I think a lot of us mainliners um, or even us, evangelicals who've been drawn to the main line have been drawn to more of the intellectual capacities of that. And so we, we really struggle with, can we be smart people and, and have this imminent frame be open? Can we, can we kind of have an intellectual christianity and and still have still make the claim that the god of the bible moves even in 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 our day and age and so um i think that becomes a big piece of it and then the other one is it just it just the rebounding on us of of resources and the senses of decline it just who's got time um Mm -hmm. you know like in many ways, what we feel the crisis is will take our attention um you know re- regardless and that's you know for just good evolutionary reasons like if if you know if there's a if there's some animal gnawing off your leg, you should probably pay attention to that you know um but you you could you could be confused on what that actually is is going on. But we we feel like this existential threat is the loss of this, and that is part of the imminent frame in its own right that we are kind of framed by market um, a certain market imagination. You know, mm-hmm. so whether we want to be kind of uh, uh, against certain forms of capitalism or not, we're it's amazing even how, you know, mainline folks who want to push back against neoliberal capitalism end up being very much formed by it. And so the best churches become the ones who are growing and the Mm -hmm. ones who have, um, are winning people. And, uh, so it's hard for us to have different evaluative measures of what it would even mean to be faithful. You know, Mm -hmm. I think in most presbyteries and synods and others like to, to, to stand up in front of your colleagues and be like, yeah, our church has 10 people in it. And, uh, You know, we had 13 last year, we had 10 this year, but God is moving and God is faithful. A lot of people would be really quite embarrassed by that, you know, but at other times that it really didn't matter how many people, it mattered the faithfulness to these people. And, and, um, gosh, you know, the way God was calling you into this and you could testify to it. But now I think we almost always assume that, like you said, more butts and pews means you're more successful. So even the way we think about ourselves, I think, uh, leads us to, to, Close, down the, close ourselves into the imminent frame.
0: So, you know, I, I think one of the things that I found um, interesting in the book and in talking about this, and um, I think the phrase that I hear, heard a lot in that book was about waiting for God and yeah. how, how all of this in some ways seems counterintuitive to what we are, what we've grown up in, um, mm-hmm. that everything has to be about activity. That we have to do things, we have to do all, and especially if we're in decline, we have all the things we, we need to do. And, you know, kind of this, how the, the book is reading is basically saying, no, it's mm-hmm. about waiting. And that's, I, that's that I think is hard for our culture, because I feel like we have to, we, we feel like we have to do stuff. We, we need to do yeah. stuff. And if we don't do stuff, then it's all over.
1: Yeah. We actually should feel great amounts of shame if we, you know, if we don't, if we don't do stuff, you know, uh, how dare you, especially if you're in a crisis Mm -hmm. and the crisis is somewhat your, your own, even if it's not completely yours, it's someone's fault that they didn't, they didn't do the right thing. Um, Then, gosh, to do nothing. How, how awful could, could, could that be, you know? So um, yeah, you know, there is a, you know, to echo the line from, uh, The classic film Shawshank Redemption, you know, like where Andy tells Red either get busy living or you get busy dying. But one of the kind of cultural realities with us is you get busy. Whatever you do, just be busy. And um, even if you even if it goes, even if you get busy, dying, just get busy. And I do think like that the depth, at least of the mystical traditions in Christianity is something different. And I suppose we should we should be very frightened of um, waiting. If the point of human life, the good life is about getting what you want um, so you're the only one who's going to win that you you should you should stay away from that um should you should make sure that you're you're not waiting um but also you know if if there isn't a God who is responsible for this and if there isn't a God that at the core of what it means to be a pastor what a core it means to be a congregation is to commune with this living god um if we don't either tacitly or directly believe that, then yeah, you better go and go and go and go and go because you are in a shrinking religious marketplace. And if you don't act, you know, you're going to go to zero and then you should feel, you know, deep levels of shame. But if God is God and then there's no way for us to control this God and all we can do, and I think this is reflected in the biblical text, is wait on this God to act, to wait on this God to move. And there is something really countercultural and faithful about a church who could wait for God mm-hmm. um, and I know it almost it almost feels repulsive. it feels uh, somewhat disobedient in some ways, but really I think what it's disobedient is again to those kind of capitalist forms more than it's disobedient to how, how the people of Israel waited on God and waited mm-hmm. on God. I mean, my gosh. Abraham just waits and waits on God, and when he tries to take his own action, things get really messed up in a, in a really you know, well. bad way. It doesn't go well <laughs> at all, um, and in many ways, it goes badly to teach to teach Israel that. Um, God will self-actualize what needs to do. The Word of God does not need Abraham. What the Word of God needs is Abraham's impossibility. That's when God will move, you know. So uh there is just something I think at the core of the Judeo-Christian um spirituality that we become waiting people, you know, mm-hmm. like in the church calendars, a sense of of waiting uh for the season of Advent. And uh, and yet as, you know these kind of secular people that we are inside of an imminent frame, uh, we hate waiting. Like we think waiting is, uh, we're just we're just bathed in a consumer society where the whole point is to take all waiting out of wanting. If you want it, you should get it now. Um, and I think there's a certain way of pushing back by saying, no, what we do as a church is we wait on God. And I guess it goes back to even to my own story of discernment. Like if we're really going to discern if we, first of all, believe God is living and active, then we have to discern this. You know, mm-hmm. we have to really think, is this God or is this, this, this the fact that's you know, the person who's saying this had NyQuil and wine together, you know, and now are, they're, they're really, no, this is not. Um, we need to discern this. Um, and that means we have to wait and be patient and, um, you know, be able to tell stories and read scripture together and ultimately keep reminding ourselves that we don't control God, that mm-hmm. God is not our mascot that God moves as God moves and i i think yeah i think it's really important that we learn how to be a kind of waiting church
0: and and what does that mean especially in a culture where the self and is so central and you know yeah. you see this especially in in social media and i'm not someone i because i'm of my background i don't blame social media for everything but i also know it's present there, and um, and it's also present in kind of in churches. And I think something that I've you've you've talked about uh, in the book is that w- the churches have to stop considering themselves at, at the center of the story. Yeah. Um, and again, how that seems like that's something that is at both. You know, of course, that makes sense. But I think also because of the cultural forces and everything, it, it does also seem like that's a that's that's harder than it that it looks to not be the center of the story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're really right. Like we we live in a whole kind of cultural realm where the self we have that we're pretty obsessed with ourselves, and I, I you know I think a, across the board um, because of these digital tools we have. And just because of the way other structures work, but the kind of self we're, we're really obsessed with is a performative one, you know, how we perform ourselves. And um, I think that happens with the church too. I mean, the church is being led by people who feel deeply tempted to be performative selves. And then we feel like the church has to perform, you know, Mm -hmm. and usually the most clear way of how the church is performing is how many resources and how many people, you know, so like, that's the first question. Most pastors ask each other, "Is you know how many people are in your church?" Um, which is 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 a performative performative question. So yeah, it does. Man, it does move us into a kind of different stance than performance. And uh, yeah, there's just a, a deep way that it, it it try it 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 really moves us into a stance of having to receive a gift, which I do again think is at the core of the Christian story. Is that the kind of disposition the human being has in response to god's grace and god's action is is to in some sense be passive to receive the gifts of of, of god but it does mean that i have to confess my own uh kind of unmagnificence or my mm-hmm. own need you know and if i'm unwilling to confess my need that uh I need god that I need to be in a community that um I need forgiveness that I need to forgive others then uh then yeah there's there becomes the only then the only purpose for any kind of faith commitment and maybe even religion in general is how it helps me helps me deal with myself, you know, how it helps me, how I can use religion to optimize my own creative self in the world. And maybe religion could be a way I can perform myself or at least the tool I can use as I go in this battle for recognition for myself, you know, Um, where I think at the core, and this is hard for us in this time, but at the core of the, of the Christian story is that we need something from outside of us to save us that Mm -hmm. what, it's not all within us, you know, that we are, we are made in God's image. We are beautiful. We are, we are wonder We are, we are wonderfully made, but we are made to be in communion with God. And therefore we need something from outside of us to, to, to save us. And, uh, I think the performative dynamics are very much that, if you can just find your truest self and you can just win recognition, then you can save yourself. You know, you, you can, your, your star can shine. And I do get, think that connects to, you know, like you were saying to congregational life, where, because we feel like we're performing to survive, you know, like we are dancing for our dinner in some sense that, you know, all sorts of consultants and others tell pastors all the time. Like if if you're, you know, there's eight churches in your community and, Yours is declining. You better figure out what your story is. You know, you got to figure out your story, why you're different. And I get that as an institutional level, but it also is a theological problem that the church has no story, that the story in the, in the star of the story, I should say the church has a story, but it is not the star of the story. The star of the church's story is God. And even the, you know, best supporting actor, uh, uh, nomination doesn't go to the church. The church is not, uh. The church doesn't even serve that role. The, the, the the story, the the two protagonists in the story are God, the world, the world that God is saving. And the church's job is to narrate that, to point to that, to participate in that, to recognize that it is part of the world and that it waits with the world and reminds the world to wait for God to come. Um, But we often tell pastors and others that you better find your, your story. What makes you different? Um, Because if you don't, you're going to lose. And yet I, I think that they're at the core of this, that the church, when it gets caught up in its own story, becomes incredibly narcissistic. And uh, really there is this need to come out of ourselves and to re- remind ourselves that there's a beautiful place for us in God's story, but God is the star of the story.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things I, because I, I lead a congregation that I would say is in decline. And you hear a lot from people that you have to find something that makes you unique or find your ministry. And there's always a part of me that wants to push back against that because it's, it's and I say this as someone, I'm not, you know, against capitalism or anything, but it, it feels like, okay, but that feels like we're trying to find market share or something. And that's great if we were Target or Walmart, but that's not who we are, That that we're the church. And I don't think that, we need to necessarily compete for something. I mean, it's, that's not who we are. And and it seems like that, that I've also noticed a lot of churches that try to do that. And in some ways it doesn't work, um, yeah. that there are still problems um, that it doesn't solve all of their problems.
1: Right. And I think in many ways it makes more of them, you know, mm. like I think, I think one of the, the fascinating things in – in uh, especially this, this kind of European-French social theory that's been out is they've, there's been a couple thinkers who have thought a, lot, a great deal about um, kind of how de- depression kind of functions. And they've, they've tied some forms of, of despondency to uh, this kind of um, – this performative self in mm-hmm. that uh, they think in a larger cultural realm that depression isn't so much a um, – a pathology is one of the quotes, the pathology of, of, of unhappiness. It's actually a pathology of change mm. and that there's this demand to continue to perform the self and change and find more creativity and go and go and go. And when you run out of energy for that, wow, you just feel burnt out. You're just burnt out. Um, and so it creates all these conditions of burnout. So there's been these really interesting thinkers who have named that. And so one of the titles of the book is uh, the weariness of the self is by a uh, Parisian thinker named Alan Ernberg, which doesn't sound very Parisian to me, but, you know, I suppose if he has a baguette in his hand, then it would all, you know, maybe it would be better, but, uh, but it's better. And it's, it's French translation it, it is more insightful. The French translation is the la fatigue, which is, uh, the fatigue of being yourself is his title which seems really insightful to me Hmm. like you know that this need to perform all the time leads people to become fatigued with trying to be this unique self the the fatigue of being yourself and i wonder if part of the problem with mainline christianity and i think evangelicalism too is if we don't have the la fatigue where we become almost too tired to be church and this becomes you know the side effect of this is that um, you start playing this game of, of, needing to do more, of needing, you know, to, to beat back decline. And all of a sudden you become too tired to be really what you are, which is this unique community of persons who have all sorts of stories of, um, seeking for God in, Darkness and loss and finding each other through these moments. All of a sudden those, those stories and those experiences don't matter because we just got to get more people. We just got to become more interesting. We just got to go, go, go. We're losing, like you said, we're losing market share every week we're losing more market share and we better go 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 and we lose the very beauty of what it means to be a church which is the concrete personhood of one another living with one another living i mean quite literally i mean what other institution in in the west has this this institution that lives and dies together that welcomes children and buries people Mm -hmm. and thinks about the whole trajectory of a human life that way i mean you know, like you said, Walmart and Target don't do that. You know, um, I mean, my gosh, if they could sell you a casket and they, they could mark it up, they would, but not like, how do you prepare for this? How this community that's going to walk through these moments with you? Like, this is a, it's, it's a beautifully unique thing to, to have a, a, a group of people who will think about the, a whole life and walk through it. But I just, again, worry that all of a sudden that becomes, pointless or secondary, because we're so afraid that we're, you know, we're losing, um, all these resources and all this relevance. Hmm.
0: What do you think is the importance of story, um, when it comes to congregations and, um, and kind of the life of a congregation? And, and the reason I bring that up is that I think that that was the, one of the central parts of the, of the book, and you actually relate that to a fictional church uh kind of giving them an alternate story um yeah and what was fascinating in that alternate story were the stories within that alternate story and so what is the importance yeah. of the of 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 the story but of also our stories in the life of churches yeah
1: yeah, yeah. well i do go very Quentin Tarantino in it and you know I don't know if that makes there's there's not any f bombs I don't think so maybe you know it's not it's not like pulp fiction quentin tarantino but um but it is you know like the last what quentin tarantino's last four movies or something are kind of alternate histories you know mm-hmm. so like imagining how history would have been different, like re- rewriting it. In, like the last, you know, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood is like, what if the Sharon Tate murders didn't happen and they were, and they were stopped or, you know, what would have happened if, if all the Nazi uh, hierarchy was bombed and killed in a, in a Paris movie theater, you know, like playing with these alternate histories. So I trade, I try to play with this alternate history of a church that has closed um, that I actually experienced in a, Microbrewery pub that used to be a church. And on the back of its menu was just like four lines of the congregation that used to, you know, be there. Like you're now eating the best wings in Pittsburgh in this old church that, you know, was built in. Right after World War One, you know, like there's just like these four lines, and so I'm, I'm in the book. I'm trying to play this alternate history of like what would have kept this church open, and again, you know, the theme of what we've been talking about. I just don't think it would have been more relevance, more creativity. Um, there's something else at play, so I try to tell that story and story, you know, to get to your your. your question directly like story is so significant because i think what we need more than anything is just to change our imagination and and stories are the way we change our imagination that we see the world differently that we that we think differently and so i feel like even you know pastors reading this book there's a lot of theory there's a lot of ideas there's too many footnotes within it but ultimately the story is trying to kind of carry the water and help Mm -hmm. you think about this differently and think about your ministry differently and think about um the significance of what you do in a different way. So it all plays in there, but at the core for me really is that um, how important narrative is for our transformation that we need, that we are just narrative beings, you know, that we are, that our lives are, are constructed around stories. And, and we know this from its opposite. Like when someone goes through an identity crisis, usually it's because they've lost the stories that they've, that they've held, you know? Mm-hmm. So like if they're, you know, they they thought they were in a, a strong relationship with their partner and then they, you know, the independent movie version, they come home and they found a note that says I've been having an affair for, you know, for five years. And all of a sudden that person is in an identity crisis and they didn't even do the moral violation, but they feel like they don't know who they are anymore because the story that they were living out of um wasn't true or they found it to kind of fall apart. So we always have our identities around stories, and uh, we always make our way into feeling out the kind of shape of reality through stories. I just, there's just no other way, I think, to be a human being than, than through um, stories. And even if we um, you know, don't have the cognitive capacities, like towards the end of our lives, um, maybe to hold on to our stories because we're in dementia, we still are bound to others who, who hold our stories.
0: And Mm -hmm. um,
1: You know, um, live inside of their stories and have a place in their stories and actually are dependent on that, you know, that people remind us of our stories or at least continue to treat us as, you know, uh, as friend or um, grandfather or whatever. So stories are really central. And I think for me, they even carry this theological weight of being well what becomes significant is the relationships we have with one another and how those relationships are really about sharing in each other's lives Um, and I for me that becomes really deeply sacramental And this is what I kind of take from Bonhoeffer is that when we share in each other's personhood there's a way that we sacramentally share in the very life of Jesus Christ who is present and to do that kind of depth of sharing in each other's lives we need stories and Mm -hmm. stories have this beautiful element of being both open and closed to us and in other words that you know I morally violate you. If I steal your story and take it as mine, I don't allow you to have voice to tell your story. Um, So there is a sense of it. it, If there being differentiation where I have to see you as other, because you have your, your own story here. Um, But at the same time, I can connect to your story and your story can change me. And I think even like for Paul, um, hearing a story can bring you into the life of Jesus Christ. You know, like for Paul's churches, not everyone has had the same experiences he's had with the very presence of the living Jesus Christ, but in hearing his story of it, they can, they can commune with the spirit too. So there's something really powerful in how stories bind us together while allowing us to kind of hold on to our distinct humanity, but then be bound to one another in the midst of it.
0: Mm. That kind of relates to um, a concept and and we've been talking really that churches i think strive a lot to be relevant but you bring up another um concept and that's resonance and yeah. what does that mean in the context of a church and um and what does that mean actually well i know it, it's kind of coming from the wider culture but how does that relate to us yeah. in the church
1: Yeah, so resonance is a a concept that I'm I'm borrowing from this German um, social theorist named Hartmut Rosa, and in his first project was his early work was really talking about how acceleration just comes everywhere. Our lives just keep speeding up and speeding up and speeding up and speeding up, and uh, what that does to us that it it tends to make us feel alienated. And again, you know, to, to to kind of show us the positive by looking at against the backdrop of the negative, like part of the problem with it being about resources and butts and seats and relevance is that it demands that the pastor do more with less, go faster, mm-hmm. go, 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 go. And what that can lead to is a sense of alienation. I would imagine there's a lot of pastors listening here who have, moments of feeling deeply alienated from their own practice feeling deeply alienated from their themselves to feel like the world and ministry itself becomes joyless because you become just kind of disconnected from it becomes an object that you're trying to somehow master and what became fascinating about rosa is he thought well we need a different way of acting and this all is about speeding up our lives so what we need to do is slow down we need to go slower and And I guess this is also the kind of th- to think about waiting, which we talked about a few minutes ago, is that um there is a way of thinking of slowing down as a form of waiting wait you know to wait but he what he wants to get at is that that won't be good enough like we 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 have experiences of slowing down, we call those the weekend or we call those vacation or at the end of our work lives we call those um retirement, and yet you talk to most people, and the weekend is. People come back from the weekend exhausted and people come back from vacation and look at their inbox and they're like, why did I go on vacation? Now I need to work, you know, three times harder just to get my inbox down after a A week of being away. And so his point is that, yeah, we should all slow down. Um, but we need something more than just slowing down. We need a, a different form of engaging the world, a different mm-hmm. form of action within the world. And he thinks well, we do have experiences of that. And, and those are experiences of resonance. Um, they tend to get buried by all this do more with less, go faster, go faster, go faster. But there are these experiences where we feel like the world speaks to us. Um, where we feel alive again, we feel a connection to something, um, where we feel the gift of receiving someone's presence, or we, we see a piece of art and it speaks to us. And, and we become in time in a different way when that happens, you know, you don't feel rushed in time. You feel, you can feel exhausted from the experience, but you feel like you were in time. Like you were, like you were in the midst of, of, of it. You're not even sure how long you were, how long, how long was that? It felt, you know, my gosh, looking at my watch, it was three hours. It felt like it was 20 minutes because you're so deeply taking taken into the story again. And he thinks that this is we, these are experiences of resonance, that we have these resonant encounters where it doesn't feel like we have to accelerate, but that we're met and that we're encountered in a deep way. So I tried to play with that. And that does go back to the waiting, too. If waiting is just a slowing down. It will be just like being in a, you know, in, in a in a gate where your flight is delayed by an hour and you're just like, give me it. You know, you hate it. And you're just like, I just want to get going. But awaiting that is a waiting with people in storytelling and in community and in prayer um, awaiting that is seeking to lean into where God is moving in the world becomes a waiting of resonance, a waiting of being connected of uh to one another. And often that connection is not, and Rose is really clear on this is that it, it isn't always positive. You know, sometimes we feel the most deeply connected in moments of suffering and loss. And a lot of pastors will say mm-hmm. like where they feel the most connected is when they do a funeral. And usually mm-hmm. it's because in those moments of suffering and, and, taking people through those experiences of grief, they feel a deep sense of connection. It's not about optimization. It's not about taking this experience and instrumentalizing it for something more. It's about really attending to these people and attending to their stories and being with them. And it's just no shock that for most pastors, they feel like that's where I feel most alive. That's where I feel like um, I'm doing my My, my best ministry is in funerals because these become moments that demand a sense of resonance and not just a sense of like, okay, can you get eight members out of this funeral? Can you make sure that you, you know, we need, we need to gross eight, eight to $10,000 out of this funeral? Like that would be crass. Um, that would be, that would be a problem. And, uh, and, and yet so much more, uh, almost all other parts of ministry have those demands, you know. So that's what he means by resonance.
0: Hmm. And have you seen examples of that happening in churches where people are actually kind of slowing down, taking that time to really listen for God, listen to each other?
1: Yeah, and usually uh, I have. And, And sometimes it just... My gosh, it just happens. You can't mm-hmm. control it. I mean, this becomes one of the elements he wants to talk about Residence is if you try to control it, then you instrumentalize it and it, you can't control it. He says you can set kind of conditions, semi-controlled experiences. And I would say in some ways, like a, a worship is a semi-controlled experience. And this goes back to the sense of God being God, too. You can't say, you know, I'm I know if we, if we sing these hymns, if we preach this sermon, God will show up. No, no, no. Not if God is God. God (laughs) is free to show up or not show up. There's no formula. There's no magical incantation that brings the God of Israel to show up. You have to wait for this God, but this God gives us practices we can take to be aware, to be prepared for, for that. So, um, we can't control it, but we can set conditions for it. And I think setting conditions for it is really attending to our relationships so there are times i've seen it in churches where all of a sudden someone just says something um or you've been going through something um with someone and i think you know like Kara articulates this in her book so well about uh the experience with marty you know like all of a sudden marty just shows up and confesses he has cancer and now this community needs to gather around him and there becomes many experiences of resonance in the, in the midst of that um but I think we can storytelling becomes a big one um, for us for us to do that. But I've also had an experience doing a grant, which in, in a more formal way, which is this uh, experience called Peel, which is inviting people to get in groups. Um, you do it with twelve people over three days, which mm-hmm. is its big challenge. Which has also been a huge learning is that almost no one feels like they can give up three days, and you wonder, my gosh, how do we be church if we can't be together? And in be together, not for any other purpose than to be together. And in this process, you get teamed up with somebody and you go through a process of taking a picture of them, like taking a portrait of them and then writing a poem about them. And there's really no other objective than to really see this person, to really hear this person. And then to give a word act and a in a poem that's supposed to reflect in some way beauty, as best as you can, who this person is. And people come in and are like, I don't know how to take a picture. And I've never written a poem in my life. And yet over these three days, they really see this other person yeah. and end up taking in a beautiful picture of them and writing an incredible poem with them. And that encounter becomes transformational. Um, but it takes three days. And people feel like, well, I don't have three days for that. I mean, if you're going to tell me in those three days, we can make sure your church has a 10% growth. Well, I could give three days for that. But to give three days just to get to know to someone and just to be with them and and just to do something artistic that might speak to me, well, that seems like a waste of time. And um to me, that's that's a huge piece of the tragedy that we're that we're confronting is that uh it is enough to just be together and just to to wait on our confessions of our need for God and to rally around those and to try to discern how God is leading us. That, that really is enough. And, uh, and yet we feel like, well, it would be a waste of three days to just really get to know someone and take a picture of them and have an experience with 12 other people of, of, of doing this. What's the objective? What do we get out of this? How do we turn this into to something that's sustainable and optimizable and, um, and yet, I think once you put your hands on it that way, you, uh, you kind of strangle the beauty of it.
0: Mm. It sounds like in, in talking about this, that there's a lot of seeing church. Well, I think part of our culture is that we see church as a business. And, and we probably see it that way, whether we acknowledge it or not, or even if we say yeah, it absolutely. isn't. But yeah. that it may need to see it, things more in the way of art. Um, that and to appreciate things and not always feel like you have to understand it all yeah. or to have something that's measured a measurable conclusion to everything um, which again seems counterintuitive in our culture.
1: Yep. I, th- I think you're really right. There is a kind of artistic disposition to this um, a, a way of being that is, Looking for the, I mean, we're, especially as American Protestants, you know, and back to the beginning of this podcast, talking about our, our mutual histories, it was all about Mm -hmm. truth. What's the truth? What's the truth. Mm -hmm. And that is part of Christianity. That's part of the Christian confession, that truth matters, but, but so does beauty. And, you know, the Eastern church has done a much better job of reminding us that truth and beauty are always interconnected. And I think our Protestant legacy, especially as North Americans has been to be more about truth and beauty and, uh, And I think that we would do better by trying to keep those things together a little bit here.
0: Mm. Well, as we kind of wrap things up, I wanted to ask is what advice would you give to pastors who are out there and and even members of congregations that are kind of dealing with a lot of the things that churches are dealing with, especially post COVID, um, lots of membership and sometimes lots of direction what advice or, or, or maybe more better to say is what word of hope would you give them yeah. in this time of what seems to be an uncertain time?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the first thing I would want to say is I would want to affirm that, that these are uncertain times and these are, uh, very difficult times. Um, last summer, however, last summer car and I, uh, took our kids and we walked the St. Cuthbert's way in in. uh, Southern Scotland in, in Northern England. And mm. we, it ends that this, this pilgrimage ends at the, um, holy island of Lindisfarne. And so you walk across, you have to wait till the tide goes out and then you walk across the mud flats and mm. finish this. We walk 63 miles with our, our high school kids. Wow. It was a, a, quite an experience. But when you get there, um, and we, we had the, the privilege of staying on the island for the night. There's a little church. I mean, that, there's ruins of an abbey. But then there's a little church that is still functions for the fishing community there and is, is is still an operating Anglican church. But that church has been there since 635, since the cultic monk Aidan put stones, 635. And one of the most fascinating things is that there's a picture in the back. And it lists every abbot, bishop, or vicar who has been the pastor from Aiden in 635 all the way until they got their last vicar in, in 2018, who is Sarah Hillis, who is still the pastor there or something. I, that may not be your last name exactly, but something like that. And so, um, you think of that. And that's, that's amazing. 635 to 2018, you know, to, right now have had that there's been somebody worshiping in that space but you look at um you look at it closely and you notice from about 700 to 1000 for about 300 years there was no there was no one there's there's 300 years where no one was worshiping in that church and the reason no one was worshiping in it is because viking raiders came and sacked that abbey and they had to take their saints bones and leave for 300 years Mm. so my word of hope is that this is not a good time uh to be in the church this is these are difficult times but there aren't viking raiders in other (laughs) words the church has had more difficult times than this you know Mm. like these are not easy times these are definitely not easy times and when we look back historically The first three decades of the 21st century, maybe the first five decades of the 21st century, maybe the whole of the 21st century will not have been the golden era of Christianity. Um, But God is faithful and that church has seen much bleaker times. And because of our narrative and our theology, when the church goes bankrupt, Christianity is reborn. And Mm. so we don't have to save the church. The church is God's responsibility, and we don't have to save Christianity. Now, things, we might lose things. We might lose denominational Christianity. We may lose, you know, God forbid, some of our seminaries. That, there's no guarantee of that. But God is faithful, and the gospel is sure, true, and beautiful, and, um, and we will be okay. So there's, there, we can take a breath. We can take a breath in the midst of this and know that God is faithful to see us through.
0: Hmm. Well, if people want to know more to read any of your books or, um, contact you online, how can they do that?
1: Yeah. So I I have a website uh, that's probably the easiest place to go, which is just andrewroot.org. Don't ask me why it's a .org, but it is, (laughs) um, but you can, you can contact me through there or, uh, yeah, you'll find there's a little uh, way to contact me or you can always Google me and, um, find me on the Luther seminary, um, webpage. And, uh, and you can find me on that, uh, dumpster fire of Twitter. I'm on that too. So, um, I'm not very good at it and I rarely tweet, but, uh, you could always, uh, send me a a tweet as well.
0: All right. Well, Andy Root, thank you for taking the time and, and thank you for your, uh, your words of hope, especially to a church as we're trying to kind of figure out how to be church in this day and age.
1: Thanks, Dennis. It's great to talk with you.
0: Well, I hope that you enjoyed that uh, interview. I really enjoyed it, um, uh, recording it. And so, and I hope that it was of help to you. Um, I think one of the things that I take away from that, and it's actually something that I've been learning myself over the last year or two, is about importance of what does kind of revival, what does a turnaround in a church look like? Um, And I think we always like to look at that numerically. And that's not to say that we shouldn't. I would love my congregation to see more people because it's a small, small congregation. Um, But I also think sometimes we um, tend to only look at uh, the numbers and not really kind of the quality. Um, how are people actually connecting with God? Um, how are they being faithful with the resources that they have? How are they being faithful in the community that they live in? Um, how are they seeing and being finding ways of connecting and finding ways to see where God is active in our world? Um, And to see that maybe with a second sight that we don't always see. There are a lot of different ways, I think, to be, um, in some ways, a church that is alive. It doesn't always mean that you're going to be a church of 100 or 300 members. Sometimes you can be a live church with 20 members. And you can be in a church that has kind of lost its focus that has 500 members. And I think that that's important for anyone that's leading a congregation is what matters is how are we connecting with, as, as Andy has said, the God who is God? Cause I think that's what matters. Um, if we don't have that, then it's kind of hard. We're not really. We don't have, I won't say that we don't have a church, but we may be forgetting why we're there and who we are and for who we are there for. So again, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Um, do consider, uh, liking or, uh, leaving a review on whatever podcast app that you listen to that helps more people find this podcast. Uh, you can, uh, follow along, um, on our Facebook um, page, also on uh, Twitter, though these days I don't know how long we will continue on Twitter. Um, I also uh, would encourage you, if you uh, follow along on Substack, to uh, subscribe to our Substack page. That is at church and um, all one word, com. Um, you can also go to our website, which is church and all one word um, and consider subscribing and getting on our mailing list. So that is it for this episode. This is episode 142 of Church in Maine. This is a podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders. I've been your host. Take care. Godspeed. And I will see you again very soon.